Good morning. It's my joy to be with you this morning, and uh, I've enjoyed getting to know your pastor uh, a little bit over the last few months. Um, we're going to be in Mark chapter 4 this morning, so if you have access to a Bible, if you would join us there, that would be wonderful. I appreciated the Sunday School uh, course seminar this morning on evangelism, and we're going to continue this morning thinking about that theme. Have you ever noticed how the people we love the most, the people that we care about the most, the people that are the most important in our lives, are often the most difficult to talk with about the most important things in life. Maybe you haven't had that experience, but it, it's a very common experience for me and I think for many. For Christians, we easily struggle to talk with our families and our friends about our faith, about the gospel of Jesus Christ, because we fear their disapproval or their rejection. We don't want to harm our relationship. We, we don't want to forfeit a friendship. We don't want to lose respect or acceptance or recognition or love. I remember the first time in my entire life, I grew up in a Christian home, I remember the first time in my entire life I finally mustered up enough courage to tell someone else about Christ. I was a high school kid growing up down the road in Fairlawn, Ohio. I had gotten to know my next door neighbor. Uh, I was mowing their lawn for them as a summer job. They started their own business and I became one of their employees. I, I got to know this family personally as a neighbor, the professionally working with them, and the more I got to know them, the more I cared for them and was concerned that they didn't know Christ. And yet simultaneously, the more I got to know them and the closer I came to them, I felt more and more tension about what it would actually look like to open my mouth with the gospel to them. If we were to ask most Christians why they don't evangelize more often, the answer we would probably receive is fear. Fear is what keeps us from speaking the gospel to more people. I think that's pretty accurate, but I think there's maybe a little way we could tweak that answer. I think maybe a more appropriate or accurate answer is shame. Shame is, I think, the primary reason we don't speak more frequently or fervently with the gospel. Why is that? Because we're not, a, we're not prepared for the possible embarrassment or ostracism that could come if we would boldly open our mouths with the gospel. We're worried that our association with Christ might affect our association with others. We don't speak the gospel more frequently because we don't want others to think we're uncool or unkind, that we are oppressive or repressive, we don't want them to think that we are an idiot, or these days, a bigot. And so we, we stay quiet. It's just easier to be quiet. In short, we don't sow the gospel because we don't want to reap rejection. 
In my case, when I finally overcame that shame and fear and actually spoke with my neighbor, my friend, I had another frustration. They didn't believe. They didn't want to become a Christian. And so while actually opening my mouth wasn't quite as hard as I thought it would be, I experienced another difficulty when they didn't want to believe what I had to say. What I want to present to you this morning from the Gospel of Mark is that Jesus prepared us exactly for this, for this exact situation. Because it's exactly what Jesus himself faced as he sowed the Gospel among the most important people in his life. Jesus knew that those who spread the seeds of the gospel will face shame and rejection, even from those closest to them. Why? Because Jesus experienced that himself. So he provides his disciples in Mark chapter 4, and he provides us with the prescription to deal with such Rejection, And here's what the main point of the sermon is this morning, and I think it's what Jesus is teaching us. The antidote to shame and rejection in evangelism is the hope of an unimaginable harvest and the promise of Christ's unparalleled acceptance. I'll say that again. The antidote to shame and rejection in evangelism is the hope of an unimaginable harvest and the promise of Christ's unparalleled Acceptance. So look with me, if you would, in Mark chapter 4. I'll begin reading in verse 1. Again he, that is Jesus, began to teach beside the sea, and a very large crowd gathered about him so that he got into a boat and sat in it on the sea. The whole crowd was beside the sea on the land, and he was teaching them in many things in parables. And in his teaching he said to them, Listen. Behold, a sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seed fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured it. Other seed fell on rocky ground, where it didn't have much soil, and immediately it sprang up, since it had no depth of soil. And when the sun rose, it was scorched, and since it had no root, it withered away. Other seed fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no grain. Other seeds fell into good soil and produced grain, growing up and increasing and yielding thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. And he said, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. When he was alone, those around him with the twelve asked him about the parables. And he said to them, To you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. But for those who are outside, everything is in parables, so that they may indeed see but not perceive, they may indeed hear but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. And he said to them, Do you not understand this parable? How then will you not understand how then will you understand all the parables? The sower sows the word. These are the ones along the path where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. And these are the ones sown on rocky ground. The ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. And they have no root in themselves, but endure for a while. Then when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. And others are the ones sown among thorns. They are those who hear the word 
but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. Those that were sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. As we see in verse 1, Jesus gives this parable to a large crowd. But the exact meaning of Jesus' words isn't readily apparent to them or even to his disciples. They don't understand what Jesus is talking about. And so the disciples, at the end of the parable, come to Jesus, and he has to explain it to them. Verse 11. He says, I'm giving you the secret of the kingdom. The seed being sown, he says, is God's word. It's, it's Jesus preaching. And the different types of soil it falls on are the different kinds of people and their varied responses to Jesus' message. In one way, it's very straightforward. But before jumping ahead into the individual types of soil in this story and, and what they represent, before we think about different reasons why some people receive the message and others don't, or why some start out so well but don't continue, I want you to notice that Jesus is teaching his disciples something in particular about his kingdom. As Jews, his followers knew what it meant to look for a future kingdom, for a Messiah who would come, who would restore the kingdom of Israel as one who is from the royal line of David, who would defeat their oppressive enemies, and who would establish his throne in Jerusalem and reign over all the nations. So they had certain ideas about what this kingdom would look like. And by this time, Mark chapter 4, the disciples must be anticipating what's to come. Jesus has stepped on the scene and he's begun preaching the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe this good news. And what, what happens right away in Mark's gospel is that many people begin to follow. Remember, Jesus is speaking here to a large crowd. So they must be imagining, Jesus' disciples, they must be imagining that through his powerful witness and his authoritative teaching, Jesus' popularity is only going to increase. This is going to be good. And Jesus stops at this point and says, not so fast. Yes, there are crowds, but they won't last. In fact, as the good news spreads, many who initially receive the word will give in to social pressures, desires for possessions, and they're not going to keep following, Jesus says. Like seed that falls on shallow soil, they won't ultimately produce a harvest. And this, this must have been the last thing Jesus' disciples were expecting. If you look back at Mark chapter 3 and verse 14, we see that Jesus has called these 12 for a specific purpose, that they would be with him and that he would send them out to preach. So just as Jesus has been announcing his kingdom, calling people to repent and believe, they know already 
This is their job description as well. But let me tell you a secret, Jesus says. This isn't what you expect. As the word goes to more and more people, it's not necessarily going to result in greater and greater positive responses. Sure, people might initially be interested to hear this good news, or they might be excited by the miracles I'm producing, but they're not going to ultimately follow me. So this is the first surprising secret of Christ's kingdom. As Jesus and then later his followers preach God's good news, that that includes you and me, as Jesus and his followers preach good news, many, if not most, will ultimately reject it. Whenever the gospel is sown, it often reaps rejection. What does this rejection look like in Mark's gospel? I want want us to pause here and and actually look at the context, what led up to Mark chapter 4 and Jesus revealing this secret of the kingdom. As I mentioned, from the beginning of Mark's gospel, Jesus steps on the scene and begins preaching the gospel. He was telling them that they needed to repent and believe the good news believe that God's kingdom promises were being fulfilled as he had come. And of course, many did respond. But as we get to chapter 3, things begin to change. Drastically so. In Mark chapter 3 and verse 6, after performing a miracle on the Sabbath, we're told that Pharisees and Herodians were conspiring together to kill Jesus. These were two opposing groups, political groups in many ways, who had nothing to do with one another. Their aspiration and ambition were going in opposite directions, and yet they could agree on this one thing. It would be like right and left today in our country who can't seem to agree on anything. They agreed on this one thing. What is it? Jesus needs to die. But that's not all. Jesus didn't only have political foes. He faced religious opposition. In Mark 3 and verse 22, we learn that the scribes, the experts in God's word, were slandering Jesus. What what were they saying about him? They're saying he's doing all these miracles in the power of Satan. Jesus' ministry was dark and demonic according to them. Just imagine, if you will, for a minute, what it would look like if religious leaders, we we don't live in a society quite like this anymore, but imagine if there was a consensus among all religious leaders, among the greatest, from the greatest to the least, maybe let's say in, in our context, some professors or someone from TLI even, came and said, your pastor is teaching you falsely. Not only that, whatever he's doing is of Satan. I mean, would you think twice about coming back next week? Not on my authority, but I mean, we're talking about the authorities in Israel on God's word say this 
wandering, traveling speaker, Jesus, is demonic. And as if that's not enough, Mark 3 ends with the story of Jesus' own family rejecting him. Look down at verse 31. Here we find Jesus' mother and his half-brothers outside the house he's in calling out to him. This isn't a call to say, hello, Jesus. How you going? How's it going? If we look back in verse 21, Mark's already signaled to us. Jesus' mother and his brothers at this point think he's out of his mind. He's crazy. So when they come to the house and they're calling out to him, it's a call to say, Jesus, it's time to be done. It's over. They want to put an end to this madness. Maybe because they're embarrassed for their son, their brother. Maybe it's because they're worried for what they know is going to be the inevitable outcome if he continues to make enemies of the powerful. Maybe they just want to preserve their family name. Like, Jesus, we we don't really have to do this, do we? This is stunning. In a matter of one chapter, just a few short verses, Mark has painted a bleak picture. Yes, Jesus is drawing a crowd. He's gathered a band of loyal followers, but the outlook is ominous. The people who should have been the most important in Jesus' life, all rejected him. His mother and his brothers, religious experts, political power brokers, the best and the brightest, the popular and the influential, his nearest and dearest, they all turned against Jesus. Jesus was an exile in his own land, even in his own home. As we mentioned, we used to live in a Muslim-majority nation where everybody, virtually, is Muslim. And this presents incredible challenges for people who want to follow Christ in such a situation. For one, you're told that to be a member of this nation is to be Muslim. You're born, you're given your birth certificate, you're given your, as it were, a social security card, not quite the same, but it's... Guess what? Immediately on birth, you are listed as a Muslim. You don't have a decision. This is who you are. If you decide not to be a Muslim, you become instantly a traitor to your nation. This is the way people process what it is to follow Christ. But not just that. You're not just a traitor to your nation. You are a Judas. Because you've turned from the way that everyone believes. You are Benedict Arnold, (laughs) you are Judas, and as if that's not enough, without fail, every single person I talked to while we lived in that country about following Jesus, without fail, they said, if my father knows, he will kill me. He will kill me. What, What in the world must it mean to live in a society where the politicians, the, to, to follow Jesus is to go against your nation, to follow Jesus is to go against your religion, to follow Jesus is to go against your family. And yet, 
This is exactly what Jesus faced. And he not only faced it, he sends out his disciples to go preach when they too will likely face the same rejection and ostracism. Do you know what I often desire more than anything else? Just being honest. I want to be accepted and respected. I really want that. I want people to like me. I want people to think I'm friendly and fun to be around. I want people to want to be with me and invite me to their Super Bowl party. And I, I, want, I want people to like me and I want them to want to be with me like I want to be with them. And I suspect it's the same for many of you. But those desires, as good and healthy, I think, as they are and can be, can be devastating to our efforts at evangelism. Because if we pursue those desires more than anything else, we will ultimately decide we need to just be quiet about Jesus. We may not face the idea in this country that we are traitors of our nation. We may not face the idea that we are turning against the most important and powerful people when we follow Jesus. But we will face rejection at some level. But have you ever thought about the fact that Jesus, your Savior, if you're a follower of him today, have you ever thought about the fact that Jesus knows exactly what that's like? He knows what it's like to do evangelism and reap rejection. Rejection from others, rejection from even his own family. People who think you're crazy, you're wrong, you're bad for others. Jesus knows what it's like to announce the good news of his kingdom and have the most powerful, influential, I mean, in our day, I don't know what to compare it to. YouTube influencers, somebody posts a video on TikTok making fun of you, I don't know. But Jesus knows what it's like to have been roundly rejected by the people that matter. That's what it's like to sow the gospel and reap rejection. And that's the context for Jesus' parable in Mark chapter 4. The surprise of the kingdom is that as the, as the word goes out to more and more people, it's not going to be received by everyone. The seed falls on all different soils, and more often than not, it reaps rejection. And even though, and here's the irony, even though Jesus has given this, this parable to the crowds, he's in, a sen in essence in the parable saying, they're not going to stay. Yeah, there's some initial interests, some sprouts in the soil, but, but when it gets tough, they're not going to last. You know, when those religious leaders, when those political power brokers, when they really amp up the pressure... The crowds aren't going to stay, Jesus says. I think this has direct application for many of us in this country. Those of us who have been Christians for 10, 20, 30, 40 years, we know that we know 
what it's been like in many ways to be the majority. To have Christianity be normal. But what happens when culture and society decides we're not normal? Or that we're a problem? Will we be like the crowds Jesus is speaking to here? Will we ultimately decide that the desire for possessions, comfort, pleasure, and the avoidance of persecution, you know, it's just not worth it to follow Jesus. But that's not the only surprising feature of Jesus' parable. I think this is the main surprise, the main secret of his kingdom. But look with me, at, if you will, at the other two parables about seeds that Jesus gives. If you're still uh, looking at Mark, Mark chapter 4, the first seed parable is one of three, and I think they're meant to go together. Mark chapter 4, and beginning in verse 26. He said, The kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day, and the seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how. The earth produces by itself first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. But when the grain is ripe, at once he puts in the sickle, because harvest time has come. And he said, With what can we compare the kingdom of God, or what parable shall we use for it? It is like a grain of mustard seed, which when sown on the ground is the smallest of all the seeds on the earth. Yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can make their nest in its shade. With many such parables, he spoke the word to them as they were able to hear it. Again, notice these parables are meant to teach us something about the kingdom. Jesus is drawing comparisons from his agrarian culture and likely the surroundings as he's even preaching to show similarities between this countryside and farming and plant life to his kingdom. More specifically, we can just see the connection of these parables because they're all about seeds, right? Seeds and sowing. But lastly, I want you to see that each parable ends with unexpected growth and incredible results. In this, the second parable, in Mark 4, a farmer goes out and he scatters seed. He does nothing more. In fact, what does he do? He goes to bed. Great farmer. It's as if the earth produces on its own. The farmer has nothing to do with the growth. October comes, and his fields are ripe and ready for harvest. Now, I live on the western side of the state now, in farm country, and if you read this parable to a farmer, they might get mad. <laughs> because farmers don't just sow seed and sleep. But Jesus has told this parable to highlight the surprising growth that comes when the seed is sown. It's almost like you can just go to bed and watch it happen. In the third parable, Jesus compares the kingdom, again, to seed, this time to a minuscule mustard seed. You know, you just look at it in your hand. 
this dry, shriveled seed? I mean, what's it going to come to? Jesus says you plant it in the earth by faith. And in the end, it's a huge tree, bigger than all the others. And it's got birds coming to nest in its shade. In the end, it will be a great kingdom where nations come and find their rest in it. This small, insignificant, good-for-nothing seed, as it were, has amazing produce. In fact, the unexpected growth that we see in these parables is in that first parable. Look back, if you would, to verse 20. The seed, Jesus says, that falls on good soil, those who hear the word of the gospel, believe and bear fruit, they they produce an unimaginable harvest, 30, 60, 100 fold. In those days, that is not what farmers would have expected to be the yield for their crops. This is amazing produce. Jesus, as it were, is, is giving a fable. He's spinning a story to cause us to be surprised. I'm not saying what Jesus is saying is untrue. It's just unexpected. We would never expect for a mustard seed to be the greatest of all trees. We would never expect for seeds to produce 30, 60, 100 fold. In the end, Jesus is saying, this kingdom that looks so small, insignificant, and doomed to fail, will in fact be greater than the disciples could ever imagine. In 1915, some seven years after his initial arrival in China, the missionary James O. Frazier wrote to his supporters back in England in an extended prayer letter pleading with them for prayer. In seven long years, he had seen zero fruit. He was working among the mountain Lisu people in Yunnan province. And so he's begging his supporters, would you pray with me? It's actually funny to read the letter because he says, just maybe give 30 minutes a day to pray for this. He's not asking too much. Eventually, though, Frazier decided he was going to give up. It wasn't worth staying. He, he dealt with bouts of depression. I mean, he's given seven years of his life and seen nothing. However, in a last-ditch effort, Frazier made the decision that he was going to return to all the mountain villages where he had been ministering for the previous seven years. He, he was going to try one last time. And it was then, just as he was prepared to leave, that God showed up. When he's ready for his farewell tour, God turned it into a victory lap. In that trip, he saw many people finally come to faith in Christ. And in subsequent years, tens of thousands of the Lisu people came to faith. Through the ministry of a man and through the prayers of his supporters. But I wonder if you've ever felt like Frazier. Have you ever felt like giving up on evangelism? 
Have you felt the sting of rejection and the frustration of failure? Have you lost relationships? Have you lost friendships? Maybe even your own family has turned against you. Or are you worried that if you would decide to actually be outspoken about your faith at work or at school or wherever, you just think about what's going to happen. Maybe you will miss out on a friend's party. Maybe you will miss out on a position at work. Or do you assume that if you open up about your faith, you know what? People aren't going to listen. It's not going to happen. Maybe you heard the first part of this sermon about how rejection is normal, and you're like, yeah, that's pretty much it, and I'm not going to, bo- not going to bother. Well, maybe you need to hear the other part of Jesus' parable. That what seems insignificant, what seems doomed to fail, in the end will produce great results in the kingdom. That final day, we will have a multitude of people from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. And this kingdom that looks insignificant now, and this kingdom that maybe your friends think is pretty silly, I mean, why are you wasting your Sunday here? It's going to prove completely worth it on the final day. And lastly, I just want to say, take heart. Jesus, the greatest preacher to ever live. Like, if you're thinking about, well, how good am I at evangelism anyway? I can't be that great. Jesus, the greatest evangelist of all time, was rejected by the most important people in his life. But that's not the last word either on our evangelism. Because I want you to see something else in this story. Yes, the antidote to shame and rejection and evangelism is the hope of an unimaginable harvest, but it's also the promise of Christ's unparalleled acceptance. If, like me, you struggle to witness with others, you avoid any kind of shame and embarrassment, I want you to notice one more feature of Mark's gospel. Look, look with me at the words of Jesus to his disciples in Mark chapter 3 and verse 34. When his own family is outside calling out to him, Jesus turned to those around him and said, Here, here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother's. Yes, Christian sister, Christian brother, the world may reject you, but Christ will accept you. The most important, significant, influential person in the universe wants to call you his brother, my sister, my mother. He wants to welcome you into his family. As Jesus said, if you acknowledge me before others, I will acknowledge you before my Father. And I can't even imagine the day when Jesus looks at you and then looks at his Father and says, Jesus, this is my sister.
This is my brother. This is my mother. In the words of Psalm 27, though father and mother forsake me, the Lord will take me in. He will take me in. It's as we come to recognize the incredible honor and unfathomable welcome that God holds out to those who would claim his name that we have hope to speak even in the face of rejection. Secure in Jesus' acceptance and acknowledgement, we can face whatever people say. We can do evangelism even when we're outcasts, when we're exiles. Because this hope is what opens our mouth to speak of Jesus. Now I realize this sermon has been for believers. For those who have begun to follow Jesus, maybe you're on the fringe and, and you're in the crowd and you're wondering if it's worth it, or maybe you're, a, you're rooted as a disciple of Jesus, but, but it's still hard. And, and I've tried to encourage you today. But maybe you're here and you're not a Christian. You haven't put your faith in Christ and you're not following him. And maybe you're just not even sure, am I a follower of Jesus? And this sermon probably makes you think, well, it doesn't, I mean, I pretty much decided it's not worth it. <laughs> if, if Jesus is holding out rejection, well, why would I follow? I want you to consider later in Mark's gospel, another encounter that's very similar. A rich man comes to Jesus and ultimately decides it's not worth it. He's considering whether he will follow and when he realizes it's going to be costly, he decides it's not worth it. And, and Peter, at that moment, Peter looks at Jesus and says, whoa, whoa, wait a minute, Jesus. We, we've left everything to follow you. What's, what's it going to mean for us? And in that moment, in Mark chapter 10, Jesus says, Truly I tell you, no one who has left home or brothers or sister or mother or father or children or fields for me and the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age. Homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, fields, along with persecution and in the age to come, eternal life. You know what I love about Jesus? He's honest. Follow me? Oh, yeah, actually, it will, it will be costly. But it is so worth it. If you're here today and you don't know if you want to follow Jesus, I say to you, come. Come. And this body will become for you. Mothers, brothers, sisters, fathers. You'll end up not with one home, you'll end up with 20. Yes, you'll lose some things, but you'll gain much now and in the age to come, what? Life eternal with God. So come, we ask you, we beg you to come. It is absolutely worth it. Let's pray. Father, I ask for 
your people, that their hearts would be encouraged today with the hope of what your kingdom will be and with the hope of your amazing welcome. Lord, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for your love. We thank you that you call us your own. Bless, we pray, this remainder of this service for your glory. Amen.